0: Hi, I'm Matt and I'm going to be bringing this third part of the teaching on Matthew 18 that we've been looking at these past couple of weeks. I'm just going to start by praying for us and then I'm going to read through the verses that we've got today and then we're just going to explore a little bit from this passage that we've chatted and prepared about in this roundtable group as I know Mike's talked about before. So I'll just pray for us now and then bring the reading in a minute. Lord, would you just bless this time, Lord? Would you bless the words that I bring and all the thoughts and ideas that have come into this with what you want to be say come through, Lord, would you work in each of the hearts of all those listening, would you open us up to, to be challenged, to be changed, Lord, by, by your word and by yeah the powerful command that you have for us through these words, through this text, through this passage. Be with us in this moment, Lord. Amen reading is from Matthew 18 verses 10 to 14, the parable of the wandering sheep. I'm reading from the NIV. It says this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. We're going to start off today by looking once again at these little ones that Jesus talks of in this passage and use these new verses that we've now expanded on to deepen our understanding of who it is Jesus might be talking about and the context that he's speaking into In verse 10 in this passage he comes back to that phrase little ones that he uses in verse 3 and verse 6 of the previous passages that we've been looking at and I think there's going to be real benefit in looking at this in the context of the new stuff and looking back at what we've already learned as to expanding our knowledge as what he might have been meaning in saying that. It's quite easy when you look at this passage to single out verses 12 and 13 as the very familiar story that we know as the parable of the lost sheep that we know so well. It's easy to disconnect it from the rest of it and not look at it in the context where it's placed. Even verses 10 and 14 are quite different if you don't look at it in the full context and can seem quite out of place right there in the middle and easy to just pull out and use separately. This parable is a parable that you're probably more familiar with in a slightly different context in Luke 15 where it's used either side Of the story of the lost coin and the story of the prodigal son. That format is a bit more familiar to you probably, but there is actually some differences between the two. Though many of the Gospels do use the same parables and the same teaching of Jesus and document them in different ways, it seems that this parable of Jesus he used on two separate occasions in Matthew and in Luke these are two different times of teaching to different contexts and different people so there's definitely something valuable about the context that he puts this parable in here that makes it different from the parable that he uses before and in the other context of the lost sheep in this context I think the language is quite important something that we picked up when we were talking about it the language is very different When you look at the verse in Luke, it's the lost sheep. It's all about this idea of the shepherd searching down for the lost sheep, for seeking out this lost sheep. But in the passage in Matthew, there's different language that they use, not lost. The NIV titles this section, the parable of the wandering sheep. The passage reads if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go for the one that wandered off. ESV uses gone astray and in Luke in the ESV it just uses lost as similarly in the NIV. This then gives a sense that there's something different about what he's saying. If we look at it in the context that we've talked about before of Matthew being very much this section of Matthew 18 being very much focused on the church and how the church works together how the church treats others within the church we can see this one in the story of the 99 being much more to do with people within the church often we think of it as people outside the church but actually this one is a wanderer inside the church someone who knows faith has been part of faith is just maybe sat on the edge of the church maybe still even part of the church but someone that we can easily dismiss as not being the same or part of the collective. This could be a result of people who haven't received the discipleship. Jesus challenged us here to look at it as Mike looked at last week as potentially the response of someone who we've caused to stumble through our actions. Someone that we've caused to fall away because of the way that we've acted as a church. That's quite a challenge. How have we, how has the effects that we talked about last time, how have those things that we might have reflected on, have led to this new section, this new wandering person that we then look at? It's definitely a challenge to us and how how we live and quite a different reflection on a story that you might think is quite familiar. Often when we look at this passage in Luke you think of it in a similar light to the prodigal son, that's That's all part of the same story, isn't it? It's all part of the same section of Luke 15. And we think of it as someone who's chosen their own way and on their own accord and in their own pride taken their path away from God. It doesn't always make us think about ourselves and what we might have done. So this is quite a different challenge in Matthew to say, what have we done that affects it? How have we caused someone to stumble? How have we caused one of these little ones to stumble? This often isn't our intention at all. I think we all can think that, but we can risk doing it still, even without that intention. RT France writes, to despise even one of these little ones, and one individual can conveniently be ignored in one's care for the church, is to show that you have not grasped the principle of true greatness, linking back to those first verses in Matthew 18 that we looked at, that Mike looked at earlier. I want to pause for a second and look at that word despise. That's quite a strong word, isn't it? It can seem like something that is really quite confronting. That's definitely what Jesus is doing here, isn't it? He intends to confront a culture, confront its Pharisees. That's what Matthew, at the heart of it, was written for. It was quite seen as quite anti-Pharisee, was quite seen at Jesus' teachings where he talks to the Pharisees and challenges them on their religious ideas that they've been working with. I think on a quick reflection we can read this and think and kind of bat it off and say we would never despise someone like that. That word can seem so strong that it completely alienates something we would think we would feel or we would respond to someone. It's quite easy to think and pat ourselves on the back and say we're doing alright, there's no one we despise. But I think if we think about it more or if we reflect more, there is those times that we've maybe overlooked people those times that we've even looked down on people around our church who maybe don't seem to have got it all together like we do. Maybe people who just don't act like us, who think different to us. Maybe newer Christians who have a very different culture, people who act very differently. Maybe they haven't fit our stereotype and our mould and expectations that we've given to them as churchgoers now. Even if we have subconsciously done that, how are those people different to us? And maybe we focus on that. And that can be the despising. The strong word is easy to completely alienate us from it, but there's definitely some real great challenge in that. Jesus is once again in this challenge bringing us back to these first few verses that Mike looked at right at the start in part one. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It is the wanderer, the one who you may see as less holy. As Matthew 18, verse 10 says, for I tell you that in heaven, the angels will always see the face of my father who is in heaven. There could be a lot said about that verse. We actually talked about it for quite a while in, in the brown table preparations for it. But I think there's very, one very simple thing that we can really get out of this passage there's something really simple that despite all the biblical stuff you can look at that, that we can nail it down to and that's those we overlook God does not overlook those we see as less holy than ourselves have direct access to God in Isaiah 6 the seraphim the angels as it talks about in this verse are depicted as having six wings Two of these were to cover their face so they would not directly be looking at God in all his glory and splendour and majesty. Isaiah himself is awestruck in seeing the Lord face to face. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Almighty. The fact the angels of these little ones can look upon the face of the Lord, shows how important they are to him. This is the message Jesus is trying to get across. The upside down kingdom, where the lowly are the greatest and the wanderer is looked upon with love by the Father. So as we reflect, here's a couple questions for you to think over and a bit of time for you to do that. First question is this, who might we overlook? Who can we easily deem as less holy than ourselves? I think it's worth just spending a bit of time in that. As we said, the initial response might not be there, but as you reflect on it, is there ways you can be honest and open with yourself about those subconscious thoughts, those subconscious ideas, and the ways that others don't live up to what you think they should. The second question goes like this, how do we show God's heart for the wanderer through our actions? It doesn't all have to be hopeless in thinking about the things there. we have got our blind spots, we can use that, that's why Jesus challenges us, is that we can then look forward and say, how can we connect with these people on a better way? How can we show God's heart through the way we love them, through the way we act with them, the way we live our lives around them? and speak into their lives? How can we show God's heart to the wanderer through our actions?